Welcome back to the Leaders We Need podcast from Oklahoma Capital Culture. I'm Joel Harder. We are in a new year, a new legislative session in the state of Oklahoma, and a new season of the podcast. The next many episodes will feature conversations with leaders across the state and nation, many of whom serve in the Oklahoma legislature. And we're going to be exploring a consistent theme, wisdom in leadership. There are a lot of things we want in a leader, a lot of things we ask of them and need from them. But a common, almost universal quality we desire in a leader is to have wisdom. Certainly the leaders I know will tell me that one thing they seek to have themselves is wisdom for the task ahead. Wisdom comes from a lot of places, and I'm asking leaders to talk about where they've found it and what it looks like when wisdom shows up in a difficult problem or conflict they have to navigate. Today on the podcast, we'll hear from Representative Mickey Dollins. He's a Democrat representing House District 93 in South Oklahoma City. I've been looking forward to having Representative Dollins on the podcast for a while. We really came to the state capitol at about the same time. I've watched his leadership and work as a legislator since it really got started. I've seen the way he navigates the political realities of serving in the minority party in the House while building genuine relationships with colleagues across the state and across the aisle to garner bipartisan support for legislation that has made its way to the governor's desk. Most of all, Mickey cares deeply about the people he serves, both from House District 93 and across Oklahoma. He's one of the kindest people you will meet at the state capitol. His story is one of dedication, focus, and that rare mixture of boldness and humility. Before we jump into the conversation, I have to take a brief moment to thank Mickey. Part of his story includes a personal tragedy, and while we hadn't planned to talk about it, Mickey graciously reflected on that experience and shared really meaningful advice for those who may be close to someone experiencing depression. I encourage you to listen to what he has to say. There will be links to further resources in the show notes that can help as well. Well, let's get into my conversation with Representative Mickey Dollins on the leaders we need. Capital culture has enabled a different and a new atmosphere in state politics. This is The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast going beyond the politics and policies to focus on the people who lead in our communities, states, and nation conversations that restore the civility we need in our politics while promoting the integrity we need in our leaders. The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a resource from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Well, Representative Dollins, thanks so much for joining me on The Leaders We Need. Can I call you Mickey? For Can I call you Dr. Harder? No, no, you can't actually. There, there's only uh, only two people have to call me Doctor Harder, and they're my brothers. Okay. So, and not I'm not being like spiritual. I mean, my mother's other sons. All right, um, Joel, it is. Joel, it is. That's right. I've been wanting to have you on the leaders we need for a while. Uh, we kind of got started in the Oklahoma State Capitol about the same time I came in and started doing the work of engaging with leaders. And I think that was that was the session that you began when you started. So I kind of got to watch you from out the gate. And I've just so enjoyed both getting to know you and also just watching your your leadership, how you've navigated what can be a strange place and the work that you've done. Well, I appreciate that. You know, the feelings are mutual. Um, your sermons and your inclusiveness has been a, a real refreshing part of each day we're, that we start session. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get us off on a positive note, and, and that's very much appreciated. My goal, I always walk into that saying, I, I know there's disagreements. I know there's hard conversations you're going to have. Uh, my desire is to encourage all of you and do what I can, whatever I can, to to just be an encouragement so that you can have those conversations well. Yeah. And you really hit that point home because, you know, we have 101 members mm-hmm. in the House of Representatives, and we all have different stories. We all have different experiences and yeah. backgrounds. We come from different parts of the state. I am um, represent a urban district mm-hmm. in South Oklahoma City. 
but I'm originally from Bartlesville. So oh, yeah. it's kind of uh, a suburb of Tulsa. Blue collar upbringing, but it has shaped who I am today. So I was born in Bartlesville yeah. and uh, played football. And growing up, I remember the thing that kept me in line, kept me, you know, turning in my homework on time and staying out of trouble was the hope of earning a football scholarship. Yeah. So from eighth grade on, that pretty much dictated everything I did. And only one issue was we were a terrible football team. We won three games my junior year, one game my senior year, and my head coach was immediately fired mm -hmm. after our last game. And I wasn't on any college re recruiting radar. So I said, what can I do with what I have? Uh, right now. Mm -hmm. And I remember I went into the coach's office and there was no one in there. It was deserted. Luckily, I found my game film. Back then it was VHS tapes yeah. from my sophomore year up until the game of my senior year, which never made it to VHS, my last game. So I took all of these tapes and I, and I went to the yellow pages back that we used to do in 2006. Yeah. And I found a wedding videographer. And thankfully, it was the perfect match. We sat down for a good like 24 hours straight and went through all of these game films and then made a little highlight reel yeah. and then copied it onto a DVD. And I just started sending these all over the country. Thanks to my dad, he helped me out with postage. After they were in the mail for about a day, I, I got online and I looked up the D-line coaches from each of these schools. And I basically cold called them and said, hey, if you have any questions about the tape I sent that you requested, I put that in their mind that they requested <laughs> to give me a call. And most of them just thought I was crazy. But uh, the first school that actually took a look and then offered me was Missouri State. And so they, they uh, drove me out there and they offered me a scholarship. And that was really neat because it almost in a way validated my athletic ability, yeah. which opened the doors to Louisiana Monroe, Colorado State, and then SMU, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And so within a month, I had opened up all these new possibilities and opportunities through the simple fact of just taking an initiative and going out on a limb and trying something that was unlikely to be successful, but it ended up working out. And I remember I told myself at this point, that if it did work out to where I got a scholarship, I'd write a book and help other athletes who were in my situation. Yeah. Didn't have a lot of like their parents, not that my parents couldn't help. They just didn't know where to begin. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, my coaches were gone and we were, you know, the team's overall success seemed to reflect individual talent. And I needed to differentiate myself. So I made that tape with the wedding videographer. Well, it all worked out. Um, in 2006, I accepted a football scholarship to SMU and decided I'd write that book. So I majored in English with a specialization in creative writing. And I found out that some of my professors would let me work on my book and then they'd edit it for me and give me a grade. So it worked out really well because these are all published authors and they know how to write well. And by the time I graduated, I ended up with a, with a book, a manuscript. Wow. And so at this point, I had no intentions of running for political office. It just wasn't even talked about much in my family growing up, um, especially at the state and local level. So my brother, who was still living in Bartlesville, had suffered from bipolar depression. He had some attempted suicides. And at this point, he was going to Roger State, doing really well, making good grades. And in Janu on January 22nd, 2011, he, he ended up dying by suicide. Mm -hmm. And this was my last semester, going into my last semester at SMU. And he had always wanted me to try out for the NFL. And at this point, I had played. I, I mean, the, I was a backup. The, the, the guys who were in front of me are still playing in the NFL. So I did what I could. I contributed on the team to where I could. But in honor of him and I guess to channel that emotional energy, yeah. I decided to try out for the NFL not as a defensive lineman, which I played, but as a linebacker. And so I started training really hard and I, I did the pro day and it went pretty well. I did, I performed well, but I didn't get drafted. Yeah. And then I got this opportunity out of the blue to try out for the United States bobsledding team. And at the time I'm like, why would they recruit football players? And I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. It has to do with crashing <laughs> and then getting back in the sled and crashing again and then doing it over and over. And so I had I I went to Lake Placid, New York, and I tried out for a four-person bobsled team, and I ended up getting on a on a four-person sled, and I was a second position, which they call kickstand because I'm a little bit higher than everyone else when yeah. we're going down the track, 
but when we flip upside down on our heads, my head is the kickstand. And so that was uh, that was a wild ride. We used to say our lives were going downhill fast. Yeah, it's literally a wild ride. Yep, back when we were on the bobsled team. But uh, I did that for a while, and I had the opportunity to represent the United States um, internationally in Austria and Switzerland. And I was on Team USA from, I believe, 2011 to about 14. Mm. And it was just an amazing adventure and opportunity of a lifetime. It really opened my eyes to different cultures. And it was almost like when I went from Bartlesville to Dallas, that new perspective of affluence and networking and opportunity that I didn't even know was there was a lot of the same experiences I had traveling outside of the country. Uh, So I came back to Oklahoma and uh, was offered a job as a procurement manager of an oil and gas company here in Oklahoma City. And the owner, who's an alumni of SMU, played uh, offensive line back when they were paying players illegally. Yeah. Funny story. One of the uh, when I was getting recruited by SMU, some of the old timers said that they took a pay cut going from SMU to the NFL back when NIL was illegal. (laughs) But now it's like that's the norm. That's what they do nowadays. So fortunately, the owner of the oil company had offered me this job right out of college. But he knew my situation with my brother and and it helped me heal being on the bobsled team. So he said, take it as far as you can. We'll always have this job for you. Oil's doing really well. And so when I came back to Oklahoma, the plan was to be a roughneck in the field for three months. Of course, make all the connections, do the drilling. Right. Basically, I'm a worm is what they call it, yeah. a worm hand. But my my main goal was to learn every little piece, every serial number on those rigs, which were pretty old, built in the 1970s. That way, when I'm back in the office and something breaks or I need to order more, I could go ahead and procure it. Well, unfortunately, three months turned into six and six months turned into a year. Oil was taking a huge downturn and there was nothing to procure. So we ended up laying our rigs over and just washing them with diesel every Mm. day. And uh, we ended up getting uh, laid off. And my colleagues on the rig, which were at least five on, on the rig floor, went in search of another job that offered the lucrative paycheck, which the oil field provides. There wasn't a lot of opportunity. I had a college degree, so I decided that I would use that to become a teacher. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, gosh, I felt for my friends down in Davis. We drilled in Dibble and Davis and Alva. They were struggling to make ends meet until the next oil boom. And I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, that was a lack of economic diversification and opportunities right. that offered good paying jobs that were blue collar work. I became a teacher, used my English degree. I started teaching freshman English at U.S. Grant High School. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, was offered a full time position. I bought a house just right down the road. And by the way, South U.S. Grants in South Oklahoma City. And then in 2016, uh, Governor Fallon at the time implemented some budget cuts, drastic budget cuts Mm -hmm. that resulted in the layoff of teachers all across the state. And unfortunately, I was one of them. Mm. So at this point, I had just bought a new house and my brother had suffered from mental health issues that I recognized were some part of the state that could have done better. So I decided at this point I would run on mental health, economic diversification, and investing in education so no other teachers would have to do what I did, which is get laid off and look for work somewhere else. And thankfully, I had enough money saved up to get me through until the election. And I just started knocking doors and meeting neighbors and getting my name out there. And it was nice because it was in the same district where my school was, of course. Um, So I knew a lot of my kids' parents. And I was already kind of connected to the community by being a teacher, which at that point I had taught there for two years. And, and then I was elected in, in 2016, and here we are today. Yeah, I want to stop you for a second because I wanted to start to get into your legislative experience from that point forward. Uh, there's so much I'd love to dig into a, a little bit. One of the things that I am very inspired by and just it, it stands out in your story is the balance of both purpose in your path when you were telling me you know how you were looking to go to school and you're driven by a athletic scholarship but a desire to write a book and that framed your major i wish i could say i had that kind of a plan and thought that went into uh, what i was going to study there was this 
balance of uh, kind of purpose and plan that was guiding you, but also the unexpected, both the unexpected opportunities through connections, uh, job offers, but the unexpected in in the form of, of tragedy. I knew that about your story, the loss of your brother. I've not actually heard the story. If you're willing to share, I would just love to hear as a brother. Was he your younger or older My brother? My younger brother. He was 18 and I was 22 at the time, 23 when that happened. As a brother, how did you navigate that? How did you process? You know, at the time I wasn't a father, but looking back now, I it was hard as a brother, but it would be just unimaginable That's right. as a father. I know, yeah. And so I had at least a support system around my teammates and then the bobsled team to help me through that. But looking back in retrospect, things that I know now that I didn't know then that I think could help people listening is that if you know someone who has either attempted or they've been going through a rough time and then they seemingly pull through and you believe everything is better, you may be under the impression that bringing it up again would only resurface Mm -hmm. those negative thoughts. And I avoided it. So like yeah. after I assumed my brother was better, we never talked about it. Like it never existed. Right. Unfortunately, I've realized now that that's, you know, there's no research or anything that shows that by talking about the past, would it resurface those negative feelings? Yeah. In fact, it can, it can help a lot. So I was obviously um, uncomfortable talking about it with him and um, looking back, it was something I would have done differently. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. Mm-hmm especially if it is a, maybe not a brother, but a a friend or close loved one, you don't know how to approach that conversation and would naturally think you shouldn't. And so, I mean, especially in today's time, it seems like, you know, these types of actions happen when it seems like there's all hope is lost. Like bad thing after bad thing keeps compounding and they don't feel like there's a way to get through it. And then you add mental illness on top of that and it can completely skew their versions of reality. And that's just the recipe for disaster. So it's impossible to really have those type of conversations with everyone. But if it's a close family member or something, those are the type that I would invest in, in time and talking and, and just making sure that, Hey, like they know that someone is here and that by talking about the past, isn't going to resurface negative thoughts and feelings. But also I felt like there, I remember feeling there's two pivotal ways I could go. One would be just a feeling of like that guilt and and destruction and, and basically giving up and, and just being mad or then taking that energy that I felt and then channeling it into something which for me was weightlifting and competition Mm -hmm. and camaraderie that I had around my teammates at that time. And I knew I needed that to continue toward healing. And so I was glad I had the the resources that SMU had with the weight room and the coaches. And and still, even though I had played my last game by that point, just like a month prior, I still was around my my college teammates. So uh, obviously that's not available to everyone. So whether it's a, you know, a church group or a CrossFit gym or anywhere that you can get a sense of community and belonging, it's important that even if you don't feel like it, that you at least maybe will yourself to, to get yourself out of those dark places and get around people who can uplift you because it can make all the difference in the world. Well, one of the great dangers, we, I mean, we are designing geared for community and I recognize that people are introverts and different personality types and but that's still something that is core in just the human makeup and one of the things to be on guard for is when you see or sense yourself isolating mm-hmm. i talk about you know significant relationships and marriage i mean one of the greatest indicators that a marriage is on a bad path is when isolation occurs both between the two and also as as a married couple isolating from others and so even if it's uh you know you don't have to go have 100 friends but but we are geared for that well thank you for sharing i I, i've known that about your story but i and you i think have shared something very very helpful and wise and i appreciate you doing that i want to jump a little bit into your leadership and legislative experience but before we do that we got to take just a minute we're recording this right now. I think day four or day five of the Winter Olympics are happening. Man, I love the Olympics. My kids love the Olympics. We watch it all the time. And I love one of the things you said about just that exposure to other cultures and nationalities and 
before we moved to Oklahoma, I worked and managed a lot of international relationships and partnerships, spent maybe 12 weeks a year in other countries. I always said the best thing I did was leave the country every year, just because you get a different perspective. And, and when you watch the parade of flags, you see and sense that, but I've got to ask your history as an athlete, actually being part of the U S bobsled team, what does that do to you as you watch the Olympics? How do you watch them? What are you looking for? What What do you? Well, if Coach Shimer's listening and you need an alternate, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting on the phone call. I'll be on the next yeah. flight to Beijing. Uh, we'll We'll send a link to, to the, <laughs> the episode. Yeah. Oh, I miss it, but I'm so happy for a lot of my teammates, like Alana Myers, the the pilot on the women's team. Uh, one of the drivers I came up with, Cody Baskew, I think is number one or two pilot for Team USA. You know, not a lot of pushers that I pushed with are still on the team, but all the drivers pretty much stay, stay yeah. the same. And so, so you know, you, I mean, you know them. Who oh, are, yeah. So that's got to change the way you're watching it. Yeah. Oh, it's exciting for sure. And I mean, those were just formative years for me, especially coming off of that tragedy and then finding my own way of how to deal with such emotion uh, and then channeling it into such competition as the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, and as you said, getting to compete against other countries was um, uh, something I left out, but it was huge because at that point I had just done wrestling and football and track, you know, yeah. and they were all against people in Northeast Oklahoma yeah. and green country. And all of a sudden we're competing against Russia and Germany and all these different uh, countries and you get to spend time with them before and after. So yeah, it was just amazing, but it's really nice just to see um, the Olympics, you know, it's, it, they are amateur athletes in the United States. Anyway, they're, they're amateur athletes. And so they are truly doing it for the love of the sport and to see that, you know, just the very best in people come out. And then yeah. sometimes the very worst is it's just a very human experience yeah. to be able to witness. Yeah. I want to transition now for the next many uh, episodes of the podcast. We're really looking at this concept of wisdom in general, but also in leadership. I mean, wisdom is one of those qualities that you, you kind of know it when you see it and, and you also recognize when you need it. Mm. And I would love to really explore from your background, your experience, the people that have shaped you. How do you think of wisdom and your thoughts on, on where wisdom really does come into play particularly in the realm of legislating and policymaking. What's your definition? How do you describe wisdom and leadership? I would describe it by a recent quote that I read from Mark Twain. He said, good decisions come from experience and experience comes from bad decisions. Yeah. And the reason I like that is because it's a whole cognitive reframing of taking something that you feel is just a tragedy, but then depending on how you address it, or how you, the, even the angle in which you look at it can be a positive thing. And looking back on just the story that I, I told, it seemed like every time, you know, the coach is fired, you're not winning games, or, you know, you, you experience a, a personal loss. All of these could have been just points to where it's like, I had every reason to be like, this is terrible. And it was, but also I was thankful that in within me and then my support system around me, I was able to get through and find a, a new opportunity or a new way of looking at it to create something that I never thought possible. Like when I was told, my principal told me I'd had to be furloughed due to budget cuts. I never thought that the next you know week that would lead to me knocking on my neighbor's doors yeah. running for office. And so when it comes to leadership, I look toward the Stoics. I mm -hmm. like reading Aristotle and I love their level headedness because it's so easy. And I'm guilty of it too. When I, when my buttons are pressed, I can, yeah. I can get a little bit flustered or uh, emotional. And I think back to the, the, the Stoics and, and taking a, a deep breath and looking at it from a different perspective and staying level headed, because I know that that's what it takes to be able to make wise choices and good leadership decisions. Mm -hmm. Give me that quote one more time from Mark, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, he said, good decisions come from experience yeah. and experience comes from bad decisions. Yeah. I'm doing a lot of reflecting on wise sayings and you think of proverbs uh, in many different cultures. Uh, you know, a proverb is poetry, 
But when we think of poetry, we think of rhyming two sentences. But when it comes to a proverb, it's synthesizing two ideas. And and that very much is a proverb from Mark Twain. You know, no, say good, it again. Good choices. Good choices come, come from, from experience, yeah. but experience comes from bad choices. And wisdom is not so much just being smart or knowing what's right. It's this journey of life that has both bad choices that lead to bad experiences, but being able to look at them and learn from them so that good choices and a better path can be taken. You know, wisdom's not just being smart and knowing the right thing to do. It's gaining the ability to both glean from and learn from what's bad and wrong, but also apply that to going a better way. And it's such a challenging thing to do. Oh, yeah. It's when, you, when I mentioned compounding earlier, I mean, right now, you, people may be dealing with debt. They may be dealing with relationships, not seeing their kids you know, as much as they want. All of these things really put you to the test. And to be able to, I guess, have like a stoic's mind and then refer back to a, a wise proverb or a quote like that can make a big difference. Yeah. But it's definitely um, always a work in progress, I feel like. Yeah. I'm 34 years old and I've got so far to go. And there are stories in my life that have molded me and made me who I am today, but I'm still far from where I want to be and the people I want to learn from. I love leveling up and learning new skills. Outside of the Capitol, I own an insurance agency. On Monday, I'm taking my NMLS test to do loan origination, basically mortgage lending. But, you know, I feel like if you have an opportunity to be a lifelong learner, learning new skills, that's going to also lead to better decision making. Because on one hand, you may be making a decision as a legislator, but then on the other hand, you may be making a decision as a loan originator. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the same would apply toward a physician or a psychiatrist. So all of these different, I think the more skills and the more well-rounded you are, yeah, and, and a lot of that can come from traveling. I think the overall better decisions that one will be able to make. A lot of that is getting out of your comfort zone. And something you were saying brought to my mind, one of the great wisdom lessons in my life kind of comes from the counseling arena. And you're right. When you're facing stressors and challenges and struggles, one of the things that I learned to identify and help people that I'm working with, it is our natural tendency when we're in crisis or we get one problem that it's never just one. It just starts to compound. And then that's all you see is the barriers or obstacles or challenges. And wisdom is, uh, is knowing that that's part of how we respond to being in a difficult moment or a tight spot or a crisis. And it's okay to let's just tackle these things one at a time rather than get just crippled because that's where if I'm in a counseling scenario and I'm, I'm working with someone, I will default to just stall and be crippled and just, well, there's just, we could solve that problem, but there's just another problem that'll come up. Let's deal with this problem. Let's find resources. Let's, let's come up with an approach and, and not just be crippled by it. You've mentioned Stoics, you've mentioned uh, literature, um, different sources of wisdom. What are, what are some, some of those sources? Where do you go find wisdom? And I, I do want to kind of lean into this idea of you as a legislator, you as a state leader, we are blessed to live in a representative democracy. You step out from your district as a chosen leader to speak for those in your district who elected you. Uh, and now you add your voice to that room of 101 voices to speak and represent the many voices mm. from your district. And that's a, man, that's a unique blessing. It doesn't, hasn't existed for most of human history and doesn't exist everywhere today. Thinking of that role of your job, both to represent your district and also to navigate these policy questions and areas where things can get done. Where are the sources of wisdom? Where do you look for Where do you find it? It's a very good question. Before I answer that, I want to circle back to what you said earlier about someone who maybe said, oh, they're they're stalling because there's so many issues. There's so many problems to address. They they don't even know where it is. Analysis by paralysis, right? 
my recommendation, a good tool that I would use in a situation like that is have a playlist of like hype songs that yeah. boost your confidence, yeah. that make you bulletproof music for me. Yeah. Motivates me a lot, whether I'm in the gym or I'm working on a project. If I have the right hype song recently, it's been Drake, <laughs> yeah. but that makes me go. It gets me going. And so have, it could be whatever song you want, any playlist you want, but have that ready to go. And when it comes to who do I, who do I go to or how do I receive um, wisdom on how to make best choices on behalf of House District 93? And every time I love it, when I get out there outside on the doors and I'm talking mm -hmm. to my neighbors and they're all familiar faces, they can tell me what's going on. They can share their thoughts about what they're hearing on the news. It really can put things into perspective because in the Capitol, it's such a, a bubble that yep. you you get on an issue and it's like, that's the biggest issue in the world. You get out there on the doorstep and it can be a completely different story. Yeah. And so I tend to get my wisdom from just your every average day, everyday person that lives in House District 93 it just really puts things back into perspective because what they're hearing on TV or what they're concerned about policy-wise could be completely different than what the priorities are over in the yeah. Capitol. So very grounding. Yeah. To, literally, right? Getting yeah. on the ground, get on the pavement, go out there, talk to people. You never know when you knock the door what you're going to see, who you're going to meet. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and to it can be fun. To take it, take it back to a wise saying, I think it's in the company of many counselors. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's having those voices. As a legislator, as a uh, representative in the Capitol, it is a regular occurrence for you that you navigate questions, policy, plans, solutions where people don't agree. Where have you seen wisdom, just sound approach and leadership, a process to navigate areas of disagreement? Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm a Democrat. I'm in a, the minority. We're 18 Democrats out of 101 legislators. And we don't always see eye to eye, to say the least, yeah. right? But it is nice to find common ground on something like eliminating the grocery tax, which yeah. helps, you know, everyone, especially low income earners. But, you know, it, at the end of the day, you do what you can with what you have. And all of my ideas at this point, my legislation is coming directly from constituents. So whether we're trying to increase accessibility for Oklahomans with a disability or we're trying to make life a little bit easier for volunteer firefighters or help nonprofits be able to raise more money, these are all just constituent-inspired ideas. And the thing I like about them is if my constituents are saying them, are giving these ideas, and it's probably not too far out of like yeah. left or right, you know, it's probably pretty middle of the road, so it seems to resonate well with everyone in the Capitol. I am proud of the bills we got through, um, you know, everything from working with uh, floor leader John Eccles on industrial hemp pilot you know, on the industrial hemp pilot program, which allowed farmers to grow hemp for the first time since 1937 to, um, you know, increasing the, the skilled trades in, in high school, making those more known, yeah. which is having a great effect right now when it comes to enrollment in the skilled trades. Um, it's just about basically coming up with your own ideas, not trying to file like uh, model legislation yeah. all the time. And then just keeping those people on the doors and the front of your mind when you're legislating and making decisions. Well, and I like that you shared that because sometimes just how it works in that building, what happens is a mystery. People don't realize the different approaches from idea to conception to language to actually then shepherding a bill through the different kinds of ways that state bills uh, can come. You know, they terms that I've learned sitting in that chamber, which by the way, you know, I'm non-political. I, I'm, I don't weigh in, but I might circulate a petition to bring one of those padded pews into the side. Cause with the new chamber, the, those plastic chairs, I, I'm not a fan, <laughs> so, but um, I know a guy, yeah. speaker McCall. <laughs> well, you know, there's learning terms like uh, request bills, you know, th that'll come from different departments that say, Hey, we, as we are a department, uh, you know, take your pick, you know, health, and human services or transportation or whatever. And we're actually administering services. We've identified here's something that could really help us. And that's a request bill would maybe come that way and correct me. I'm probably painting in broad strokes or a constituent bill. This is what you talked about. Something that's coming straight from uh, expressed vocalized needs of your constituents 
to the idea of a model bill where you look at what chambers and legislators in other states are are doing kind of you know, modeling legislation off of that that's so insightful to and and why I love these conversations because it's too easy to let ourselves get just taken away with the narrative that it's just partisan rhetoric and there's these divides and we're, our politics are broken. And when you get closer to home, when you get closer to state and, and local level leadership, um, there's an old saying, a pothole knows no party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you, you like you just said, hey, if, if one of my constituents is raising this, chances are it, this is a, an identified shared challenge in your district mm-hmm. and and you can find those ways. I kind of want to keep with this concept of, of wisdom, but I want to hear it more in the in terms of you telling a story. And I didn't ask you this up front, but I, but you opened the door because uh, you, you mentioned the bill you ran with uh, floor leader Eccles. And I'm just going to tell you as an observer and a closer observer, I, I, you know, I was in the building in the room. My take on that, you know, I watched you come in your freshman session um, I don't recall if there was a whole lot of bills you ran that first session, but I, I, I watched you, I think, build relationships and identify areas of, of agreement clearly because then that next session out the gate, I saw you running this bill as a member of the minority party, co-authored with one of the top leaders of the majority party, the floor leader. And I I just sat back and, and again, I'm non-political. I'm not going to get into particulars of the policy. I welcome you to, but just watching you do that approach, I, I have to say, that's smart. <laughs> I mean, there was just, it struck me as this is not just getting caught up in the, well, minority party, you know, majority party, they're never going to work together. Man, you did it. You, I think you early in your legislative career uh, collaborated, identified, and moved something across the finish line. If it's okay, um, that was just my observation on the outside. But if you would, walk me through that process from your perspective. I would love to hear you talk about how you approached coming at that bill, how you both shepherded that through and worked together across the aisle to get that to the governor's desk. Yeah, I believe that was either 2017 or 2018. And at this point, of course, medical marijuana wasn't even really a thought. Um, industrial hemp seemed like way far out there for yeah. red state like Oklahoma. And you know, I had been hearing from some farmers in western Oklahoma of all of all places. They had and, reached out. And you're an urban district yeah, in south, south of Oklahoma OKC. City. Yeah. So. Yeah. And, and so they had reached out to me. I guess they saw me on um, uh, Facebook or maybe the news or whatever. And they reached out to me and they said, you know, we used to have robust hemp farms in western Oklahoma, but in the 1930s, it got caught up and it was labeled, mislabeled as marijuana and they, they, the federal government shut down all hemp production and we'd love to be able to grow it for textiles and all these different uses. And so I started looking into it and well, I said something like this, you're going to need some, you know, you're going to need a heavy you know, backing behind it. So at that point, you know, it made a lot of sense to uh, approach Leader Eccles with this because he's a South Sider too. Yeah. We both represent South Oklahoma City, and he's open-minded, and he's also he's got he's a good businessman. So he sees like the opportunity for more people to be able to participate in the economy. A lot like how my colleagues on the rig were basically laid off and and then displaced to automation. They need a new industry. And since then, of course, industrial hemp has come back, uh, you know, wind farming, all of that has really taken off. But uh, he, he saw the economic advantages of it for Oklahoma farmers, and we just uh, teamed up on it. And he was a huge help, especially in those like committee meetings and mm-hmm. then um, helping during some debate. He debated for it, of course, and we got it through. And, and since then, it's had a major impact on Oklahoma's economy. Mm-hmm. And, you know... Just taking that as an example, I've I'm working with Representative Boatman right now on a bill that will access um, increase accessibility for people in wheelchairs in Oklahoma. So I just realized the potential of teaming up. You know, you want as many people on the bill as possible, but finding those like-minded uh, legislators in the uh, majority party who will support an idea, mm-hmm. and and then also at the end of the day, not really caring who gets the credit yeah. for it. Yeah. 
Um, if you know, there's been a couple of bills that were major bills that I, the deal was I, I give up authorship and as long as it would get through, I was fine. And it yeah. did, they got through. And at the end of the day, Oklahoma was a better place for yeah. it. So th there is a good point. If you need to remove ego and then also form alliances and ideal partnerships to have a really big bill like that get through. Yeah. Which on both cases on the industrial hemp bill and then on another bill, they were both really big bills that uh, required both. Yeah. And now I'm blanking on the on the president, but there's a quote from a former U.S. president about there's there's no something to the fact that there's there's no end what can be accomplished when good people try to do good work and you don't care who gets the credit. I can't remember who that was, but that's a great example how wise leadership, understanding the process, understanding the dynamics, shepherding it well, can accomplish good for our state. What are some of the obstacles to more of that happening? You know, a lot of or, obstacles are like outside influences, whether it be like special interest groups yeah. um, coming in with like an agenda to shoot a bill down because it may affect what maybe their bottom line or maybe they're just their way of life. And so, you know, organizing is super important. I, I recommend everyone do it. But also we get a lot of form emails and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So when you are involved in the political process and you either come out for or against a bill, you know, look beyond just the form letter that they're telling you to send. Uh, a perfect example of this was a lady from Michigan called me the other day and asked me to sign a legislator's pact to end term limits at Congress. And, and I said, well, how long are terms are you talking about? Like, uh, if we're going to end term limits, like, no, I guess it'd be the opposite to implement term limits in Congress. And then as a little bit farther down, uh, we, we talked about a little bit more. She wanted representatives to only be able to serve six years. Yeah. And Congress. And, and I said, well, I have an issue with that because while I'm not against term limits, I think that if you are getting new people in every six years, naturally, you're going to have institutional knowledge yeah. within the legislators leave. And who retains that knowledge? The lobbyists and the people who right. don't have term limits. Right. So uh, I'm glad I didn't sign that because while I, like I said, I'm not against term limits, I think six years is too short. Right. Just like, gosh, I'm in my sixth year and I'm getting a grasp on things, but it's taken a while. And I feel like by year 12, when I really have an understanding of all the intricacies of all the different agencies, I'm, I'm sure I'll be still not nearly as knowledgeable as I'd want to be. I'll have to leave. And then someone yeah. brand new will come in and, and take over. You know, there's an upside and downside to everything. Yeah. And I just refer to that particular story about the pact, the, about the term limits, because that can be, you know, that's a, a lot of times the same case for a lot of different bills. There's good and there's bad. And I remember when I was first elected, my dad actually told me, you know, if it's a good bill, vote yes. If it's a bad bill, vote no. And I was like, that makes a lot of sense. But when you get there, some of these bills, like they are so like, there's so many good and bad. There's a lot of good and bad yeah. between both. There's a lot of gray area. Yeah. And that's where you have to really consider and get quiet and think and talk to different sides. And, and, and then ultimately have a pulse on your district and then make the best decision with the information you have. And I'll just tag on a little bit to the concept of, of term limits because, and I agree the institutional knowledge and the time it takes to really learn the process and understand how all of these things work together to actually make the state run and operate. But it is also is institutional knowledge, but it is relationships and the time that it takes to forge those relationships uh, to be able to then navigate the process and, and utilize that institutional knowledge. I think one of the great obstacles and maybe sicknesses in our culture that surrounds our politics is that we look at you as elected leaders and we focus on the power that is entrusted to you, and that power is real. There's a social contract. I think it's Ronald Heifetz, old Harvard business professor, talks about that social contract. We entrust leaders with certain responsibility and powers, and it's real. And you can steward that well and do a lot of good, and it can also be abused and do a lot of bad. But we've let that focus on leaders and the power turn you into caricatures of your party, your your track record on policies or whatever, and we forget that you are still people that serve for a time 
term limits, notwithstanding how long a time, but you are people that serve for a time in those positions of authority. And, you know, a lot of folks who listen to leaders we need, um, they don't know what you're talking about when they hear form letters or, you know, advocacy campaigns or, you know, call your legislator campaign. They've got jobs, they've got lives, they do other things and they don't, maybe not even aware of that, but you start to get involved a little more in the political process and those become a very um, well-known way in which we are encouraged to engage with leaders. But a big message and a big part of what, what I try to help communicate and share is to take that one extra step because you as an elected leader, and you get inundated with those kinds of messages and they can be good. They can be done in a, in a productive way, but they're, they're messages that maybe still are trying to advocate for a certain outcome. Probably a lot of what you get is a lot of just negative messages. Never underestimate the power of sending a very human message. Remember that your, your elected leaders are people. I'm not a huge fan of Twitter, mainly because I'm just not that good at it. But man, 140 characters can be powerful if it is a different kind of message. And it can just cut through a lot of that, that noise that, that you're used to getting. And just remember that leaders are people and engage them as people and encourage them to lead well. Because as you've mentioned, the job's not easy. Very seldom is it, yep, that's good or bad. Now, sometimes sometimes you can say, yep, that's a good or bad bill, but there's usually a lot of gray area. And so your task is not easy. I'm grateful for for you doing it and the sacrifice it takes because on top of all of it you got a company and two kids two yeah two kids two and three i I remember when the first was born i i I, well we had a pandemic (laughs) a lot happened um you know there's that's a shared burden of sacrifice well i want to be very mindful of your time and i appreciate all that you've shared i just want to acknowledge also that it is 2022 it's an even year it means it's an election year. And as a member of the House, you are up every two years. So not only are we on uh, the opening days of a legislative session, and the next few weeks and months are, are very busy for you with your task of the legislative session, but campaign is coming. The next nine months of your life are going to be pretty busy. Where, where do you get the most life in a day or in a moment? Uh, I, I would just love to hear, like, how do you plan to tackle the next nine months? I just keep telling myself, never take it for granted. Yeah, This position that the people of South Oklahoma City have elected me to, I do not take lightly. Yeah, And I just remind myself that even the hardest day over there is nothing compared to being in the bottom of a mud pit with a power <laughs> washer cleaning out fossil fuels. With so, diesel. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So it's all relative, but this is can be very meaningful yeah. and, uh, you know, fulfilling work, especially when you're working directly with constituents who are so passionate about the bills that you're running for them, yeah. usually named after a family member. Yeah, I've noticed you do that. Uh, mm-hmm. I, that's a consistent thing. I love that. So, you know, that weighs heavy on me. And and then also my, my children who are two and three, I want everything I had talked about, giving them the opportunity to travel and experience mm-hmm. new things and try different foods and learn about new people and cultures is ultimately going to come down to my financial success to be able to provide that for them. And so, and then also like their college and going on into higher education. So I take that extremely, like, that's why I work two jobs outside of the yeah. legislature. And so that keeps me going. But I, I actually have a quote in my bedroom that says, enjoy this moment because it will never come again. Yeah. And you have young kids, too. I mean, they actually physically change from week to week and their vocabulary. If you if you've spent a week or two away from them, you notice like they are more advanced than the last time you saw them. But yeah. if you're with them all the time, it just seems to like happen. You don't yeah. even notice yeah. it. That really, it, it, it's really become apparent to me lately. It's almost like an anxious feeling I have. And I, I feel like I'm always running out of time. Yeah. When I was a teacher, we used to take, I, I came up with this lesson plan. Because before I taught English, I was a leadership teacher. Mm-hmm. And I taught leadership in college preparatory. And there were juniors and seniors, which was awesome too. And uh, 
we would take these dimes and I had this like little metal imprinting kit with the alphabet and we would take the letters T-I-M-E and we would stamp time on a dime as a little physical reminder that time is valuable and to yeah. spend it wisely. Now, don't pay attention to the fact I'm defacing government profit, <laughs> yeah. ruining dimes, but... No, it, it it served as a reminder. We put them on little keychains or necklaces. Yeah. And but gosh, at that point in my life, I didn't have kids, and I, you know, I I was single and no kids and yeah. doing a, my teacher thing. And, and now, I, yeah, I definitely people depend on me is yeah. what I'm getting at, and that it scares me, and it, but it also gives me energy to want to make the most of each day because as quick as football went by in college, as quick as the you know olympic dreams went by it's like this is going to be another blip yeah in six years for me and i'll be doing something else and i want i want to be in a position to do the next thing for myself and my family and my community so i can't let a single day go to waste and it, it weighs heavy on me and i've been learning like tools to to deal with that a lot of that is the cognitive reframing making the most of each day and at the end, I'm incredibly grateful just for the opportunity to sit here in your office and record this podcast yeah. and get to know you. Another really great thing I love about the legislature on both sides of the aisle is all the experiences that people come from, whether it be from healthcare or business. Um, I would never have the opportunity to meet great people like that if it weren't for the position I was in. And, and a lot of that goes into building relationships to do better on the behalf of Oklahomans. But then also it's just learning more about people and, and how interesting they are and everyone's background. It's really fascinating. And I, I get energy off of that, too. Yeah. Well, uh, well, Mickey, Representative Dollins, thank you so much for your time. I am grateful for you. I truly been both impressed and inspired watching you lead in our state. And we're better for you. Thank you, Joel. I really appreciated it uh, anytime and uh, anyone else, any other legislators or leaders in Oklahoma listening to this, I highly recommend you get on and share your story and have this conversation as well. Thank you for listening to The Leaders We Need with Joel Harder, a podcast from Oklahoma Capital Culture. Oklahoma Capital Culture is a nonprofit organization shaping a culture of civility, integrity, and servant leadership among policymakers through non-political and non-partisan engagement. Learn more about Oklahoma Capital Culture and how you can help shape the leadership culture at www.capitalculture.com. Original music heard on The Leaders We Need, provided by Scott Allen Matthews at mypodcastmusic.com.